Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On Christmas Day, 2015, Concussion released in theaters across America. This was a movie starring Will Smith as Dr. Benin Amalu, an accomplished pathologist working in the city of Pittsburgh. The story revolves around something he uncovered during the autopsy of a former NFL player, leading to the diagnosis of what is now known as CTE and many changements in the treatment of concussions suffered by players. This story is important, but it fast forwarded past the life of that former NFL player. A player that was known to many Steelers fans as Iron Mike. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great Scott. This time as we step out the DeLorean, the date is September 24th, 2002, in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This was a way too early death of former NFL legend, Mike Webster. Often referred to as Iron Mike for his incredible durability. Mike Webster is widely considered one of the greatest players in NFL history, and many argue that he was the best center of all time, on one of the best football franchises of all time, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers. If you look at his Pro Football Hall of Fame bio, you'll find this, quote, played every game 10 consecutive years, 1976 to 1985, Durable, missed only four games first 16 seasons, started 150 consecutive games, Steelers captain nine seasons, played in four Super Bowls, six AFC championship games, all pro seven years, all AFC five times, played in nine Pro Bowls, end quote. And again, at the opening, I talked about the movie Concussion with Will Smith portraying Dr. Bennett Amalu, the pathologist with discovery of what would ultimately be known as CTE. But it all started with the autopsy of this Pro Football Hall of Famer, Mike Webster. The thing is, the movie kind of glazed over Mike Webster's story, focusing more on the story of Amalu, which is important, and I understand that. However, it's also important to understand the life of Mike Webster, For some, it's honoring the legend that they remember it on the gridiron. For others, it's to understand what Mike really went through. And then for some, it's to realize that what they thought about Webster was not for the reasons that they expected. No matter who the audience member is, the importance of the Mike Webster story cannot be understated. And this week's guests, yes, you heard that, guests with an S, 
the first time I have multiple guests on the same time, which is kind of a unique experience for me, something I'm definitely down for trying in the future, but we have multiple guests, and they both believe that this story was extremely important to bring forth to light. We have Dr. Randall Benson and Ross Howard on this week's episode. But first, let's give you a quick little bio from each. Dr. Randall Benson is a globally regarded behavioral neurologist and imaging neuroscientist who is recognized for pioneering effective treatments for incapacitating brain disorders. With an unprecedented understanding of brain function and disease, Dr. Benson testified before the U.S. Congress on a National Football League-sponsored study on concussions. You can find him at www.neurologicstudies.com. Now, Ross Howard is a British playwright whose plays have been seen across the U.K., Ireland, and the United States. He is a Samuel French Short Play Festival winner and a 2008 Edward F. Albee Foundation Fellow. In 2016, a festival of his work was produced at Off-Broadway in New York City. His plays are published by Samuel French and can be found wherever you buy your books. You can find him at the website rhplaywright.com. Before I get into this unique interview with Randy and Ross, I gotta give some love to our brand new network sponsor, Thrive Fantasy. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday and Thursday and Monday and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA Golf, Cricket, Esports, and of course, NFL football. And just to get the 2021 NFL season started right, Thrive Fantasy is holding its $100,000 guaranteed contest with a $20,000 first prize. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive. That's T-H-R-I-V-E. Or enter promo code SHN when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. Go ahead. I got it. Pause this button. Mash the little pause button right now. Go sign up first for Thrive Fantasy. Then you can come back here and we can listen to this interview. The easiest way, again, for you to get over there is sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash thrive. Or if you go right to Thrive's website thrivefantasy.com, make sure you use SHN in the checkout. That way you're going to go ahead and get that 100% match up to $100. Speaking of props, you might want to take the over on the length this episode because we had such a great time on the interview, we didn't even realize what time it was. Enjoy. Like I said, I don't have this type of a thing. I have a, a doctor in the field of neuroscience and a playwright from England, which for an NFL podcast history, like what well, this doesn't make any sense here. So was, uh, <laughs> by the time this this episode airs, I'm pretty sure because this is going to be the middle of September. So we're going to we're looking at here September. I want to say the 8th. So the play should have already had its opening in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, right? September 4th is that first weekend. Uh, September 2nd, it opens. 
Okay, so then we'll already had gone through one weekend rousing reviews. We'll have all these types of things. But speaking of this play, so let's let's share. Ross, I'll let you go first. Why do I have a playwright from England and a doctor from neuroscience? And we're talking about a play, and it's on an NFL History Podcast. What, what do we have you here for? Uh, yes, uh, thanks for having us on. Me and Dr. Benson have worked on a play over the last couple of years that's uh, opening, like you say, next month. It's a pl- called 1252 and it's the mike webster story i wrote it and uh, dr benson was the one who brought the research and uh, and the story to me and uh, we went from there so this mike webster this is a name that in in the nfl realm the world a lot of people know about that not just because of the recent movie that came out but i think that name was more prominent from the movie concussion with will smith in there for myself for instance even before i started the podcast. So it would have come out, I think 2015. And I started the podcast in 2018. So that I'm going to tell you both right now that I did not watch this movie until last night in preparation. And it's funny how you both go like this and like, why would he not do this as such an NFL fan? I think part of it, and I'm going to end up asking some questions down the road. I realized when I introspectively looked, I'm like, I think one reason why I didn't watch this was because subconsciously, I was scared what it was going to tell me as an NFL fan about not just the league and what can be damaging to players and things like that. And I think I was actually timid to watch it, but then I'm glad I did because it opened up. And as you and I talk here, Dr. Benson, let's, we're going to take this DeLorean thing back in time. So I don't know if you guys saw the cover of my show, but there's this DeLorean. We're going to take both of you. I'm not sure who's going to be Jennifer and have to sit on the lap of Marty McFly because this is only normally for two people, but we'll figure it out. So let's go back, way back in time. National news during the time frame, like from you being Dr. Benson in the field of neuroscience, was this big news for you at the time? Well, I got to tell you, Arnie, there's a lot more to it than what you're thinking. I started this project um, back around 2010. And I don't know if Ross told you, but I met Webster's son, Garrett Webster, at the NFL concussion hearing, the second, the second hearing on head injuries. Actually, I guess technically it was called a field hearing on head injuries in football. All right, so I was invited to talk at this in January of 2010. And I did. And actually, John Conyers, uh, who you may recall, uh, Congressman John Conyers, chaired the session. And I spoke for about 20 minutes. And then we had a break not long after that. It was a long day. So I get up. I start walking around. I see this six-foot-nine-inch guy in front of me. And I just kind of impulsively went over to him. And I said, "Um, hey, who'd you play for? And he said, no one. And I was shocked. And he said, I'm Mike Webster's son. And I I said, oh, I grew up watching your father. I'm a Pittsburgher. We had a brief conversation there. So I'm, I'm a head injury researcher and a neurologist. And so I was very interested uh, for personal reasons, you know, as, as a huge Steeler fan, but also as, as a brain injury guy, I was really interested in the plight of Mike Webster, uh, his, his so-called demise. 
And, you know, there were a lot of uh, fluctuating rumors about Mike, that he was on drugs and this and that. And Pittsburgh is, uh, you know, it's, it's not a very forgiving place. It's, you know, it's, it's a very tough place to grow up. It's a tough place to play football. And Webster took a lot of, um, let's say, undeserved criticism uh, because nobody really understood at the time because we're talking late 90s early 2000s nobody really understood the connection between football and head injury and and Mike had lost pretty much everything that he had made you know a sizable amount of money had investments and literally the wheels fell off the wagon for him and his family and he was at point in time that Sonny meets him, he's basically holed up in a Greyhound station with about 20 hefty bags full of his worldly possessions. So I connected with, uh, with Garrett Webster and Bennett Amalu, who you know because you just saw the movie, uh, was the pathologist that, uh, that did the autopsy on Mike Webster's brain and a few other players. So Bennett and I connected at the hearing, and then after the hearing, we spoke. And I said, hey, Bennett, I think there's a movie in this, you know, in, in the Mike Webster story. And he said, oh, I'm already under contract with Sony Pictures. And he said it just like that. And I thought, oh, interesting. But he said, but if you're really interested you can contact Sonny Johnny because because Garrett had spoken with the family about doing a movie about his dad and the family had so much shame uh, surrounding his demise that they said no. And, you know, I tried to sell them on the possibility of a movie, a book, this, that, you know, and Pam, Mike's, Mike's, uh, widow said absolutely not you know she didn't want to air her dirty laundry yeah so that's when bennett said oh talk to sonny johnny he owns mike's life rights and he'll get the family in tow they follow his lead so i did that i i cold called sonny and i said listen i think uh, i think we can do something with this story and so not long after that i i blew into town uh, with um, a co-worker of mine, and I interviewed everybody I could get my hands on <laughs> of the principles of the story, and that included Mike's attorney, Bob Fitzsimmons, his wife, his ex-wife, Pam, his son, and, of course, Sonny. Now, Sonny was the most colorful of all of them. He's the perfect mix of a Pittsburgher and a Hindu guy. And, you know, my brain hurts when I try to picture what that's like, but I've lived it, right? The second time I visited Sonny, uh, I waited around an hour for him at his family's general store, his 90-year-old mother and his, uh, his brother entertained me. And all of a sudden, I feel this this body on top of my back and it was Sonny Johnny. And that was Sonny's way of saying hello to me. And 
not apologizing for keeping me waiting. And I, I have to tell you, Arnie, the, the story as it unfolded through the interviews became more and more uh, interesting, more and more a buddy story, less and less a football story. In fact, the football part of it, strangely enough, because we're talking about the 70s Pittsburgh Steelers and the linchpin of those teams, um, at least on the offense. But what I learned through the, through the interview process just blew me away. And I thought, all right, you know what? I never really intended in my life uh, to do anything this theatrical but this has just fallen into my lap. And, you know, who better than me as a Pittsburgher, a huge Steeler fan, a brain injury researcher, and uh, now a guy, you know, who's one of the only people in the world to understand what really happened to Mike Webster, while the rest of Pittsburgh, you know, is still blaming him for his plight thinking that it's about steroids and this and that. And so so we started working on a movie project beginning in about 2011. Uh, I connected up with a small film production company that uh, was just getting started. And everything was going good until we learned about the movie Concussion which was Bennett Amalu's Sony Pictures venture, so to speak, uh, headed by Will Smith that you just saw. <laughs> there were some interesting wrinkles, uh, and we had heard that the Webster family had divulged a lot of information that they were under contract to not disclose, and it wasn't until WikiLeaks remember when there was the the breach of WikiLeaks and it was all over the internet, including Sony Pictures. And I had the opportunity to uh, read conversations going on between the higher-ups at Sony about this movie uh, until I was convinced that, that Mike Webster was not a... A, a principle, if you will, of the movie Concussion. We, we were going to file an injunction. I had a New York attorney ready to go. And I said, uh, all right, let's call off the dogs. It doesn't look like it's. But what happened was our investors ran because Concussion came out opposite Star Wars. And in December of 2015, when everybody was psyched about the playoffs, nobody was interested in a downbeat movie about the NFL. So it, it did not do well at the box office. So our investors took off. They left. So in the meantime, I, you know, I, I sort of... Uh, pondered the situation, and then I thought, well, you know what? Let's do a book. Let me get Pam Webster to do her book. Well, getting the Websters to do anything is difficult because there's such ambivalence 
about Mike and about their lives because their lives went from being what you'd expect them to be when the Steelers were on top and Webster was on top to um, the divorce, Mike owing a lot of money, and then the rumors flying. So then I thought, let's do a play. You know, it was kind of an impulsive thought. Are you familiar with the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Arnie? You're not. Okay. All right. So the Purple Rose is um, is a, a professional theater um, out near Ann Arbor, actually in Chelsea. I hooked up with the creative director there, and it turns out the guy, his name is Guy Sanville, actually. So he's not only the guy, but his name is Guy. He had played football, and he loved the story. And he said, I want to do this. So I thought, all right, well, it's not Pittsburgh, but this guy is, he runs a professional theater um, and he wants to do it. Things, you know, things uh, I thought were uh, going in the right direction. He had told me that his, his wife had cancer. She was in remission. Her cancer came back and he disappeared. So I thought, all right, you know what? I, I really should be doing this play in Pittsburgh anyway, right? Because um, Pittsburghers, you know, eat, sleep, and drink anything about the Steelers. You know, that's, that's where my bloodlines go back anyway. But the, uh, the playwright, the main playwright at the Purple Rose said, no, I'm too busy. Because I, 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 I said, would you be interested in, you know, helping me write this thing. And he said, no, I can't. But what you might want to do is go on this playwright's site on, I think it was Facebook, Ross. So I put, I put the job out there. I, you know, I put the, uh, the project out there and I got a few responses. You know, people were really interested. And I got a sample from from um, three or four people, and Ross was my guy. There was just no doubt about it. Uh, first of all, um, he's got a great writing style. You know, I wanted somebody who, you know, I mean, and, and this was the problem with, um, with actually the screenplay for the movie, because I had been through a few different writers and people wanted to make Mike Webster out to be, you know, some kind of a, uh, a zombie, like a monster almost, you know, because he had CTE, right? He was the poster child for CTE. I said, no, 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 that, that's, that's not accurate. That's not the way it was. We have to be much more subtle about this. And, and so, you know, Ross's writing style uh, was was there was much more humor and much more subtle, and I liked that. And plus, he was a huge NFL fan, and he was a Steeler fan. So the fact that he was that he was on the other side of the pond really didn't make a difference because he was the right guy. And so we spent what was it seven months? I think you said today. 
Yeah. And it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, he's a brilliant writer, you know, he, he came up with his own interpretation of the story. Uh, but it was infused with a lot of research, certainly research that, that I didn't know about, particularly with regard to Terry Bradshaw. In fact, there's a lot more Terry Bradshaw in the play than there was the screenplay, the, uh, the movie script. And it, it just, uh, it worked. It, it worked. And anyway, let me, let me stop there. That's, uh, that, that, that should give you a pretty good idea of how, how this got hatched and how it evolved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you're talking to somebody who I thought I was getting, I mean, you just gave us the whole synopsis. My brain is, uh, is kind of firing and all what would be a neuron that's firing. Is that what the right term would be or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's about uh, 35 follow-up questions. <laughs> that's why we're here. Okay. So then you, you, you get this, this idea you've gone through. It sounds like way more uh, trials and tribulations to get this play off the ground than I even had realized or anticipated then you get ross you say he was your perfect perfect playwright for it and i gotta be honest as a guy looking through ross's biography on his website i'm thinking a dude from the united kingdom i don't see any other sports plays in here except for something called the amazing always like to me at first i'm like how is this guy perfect so ross why did why what what drew you to want to accept this project well it it was it was just one of life's amazing coincidences or it was very serendipitous that I had I had just come back from New York having had a reading of the, a football play that I'd written called The Amazing Always and the only reason I saw uh, Randy's post in this Facebook group which is a very random way of connecting with people or actually getting any kind of commission or any work uh, was because I was jet-lagged from this trip in New, uh, from New York and I was up at about four in the morning my time when Randy posted it. And I, I immediately had two plays that I had recently written that were, I thought were relevant to what I knew about Mike Webster or, or what I knew. Um, it was, it was the, uh, it was the amazing always, which was just a, a, a football play, American play. And I had also written a play about the man who shot John Lennon. Mark David Chapman, which I'm not comparing Mike Webster to Mark David Chapman, but the, the, in a similar way, you're, it was a play about schizophrenia, and I think I think Randy appreciated how I wrote that play and how I didn't sensationalise or caricature. I remember Randy being particularly impressed by the two plays that I had sent him, and yeah, and the, the fact that we had the Steelers connection, I was confident of getting the job from what I had recently written and was able to show him immediately. So yeah, it was, it was amazing. Cause I was after, after, after writing that football play, which was, um, I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I, I, I knew I wanted to do it again. And I knew once, but I, you know, it, it, it's not a really done thing in theater to be writing about football or, or anything like that. It's, it's, there's very few plays about them. And it was just amazing that this sort of fell on my lap. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, I had seen Concussion. 
I now because we because we've been so invested in this thing for the last couple of years. I I, I now can't remember what I knew about my Webster bef- at this t- at this time, but I knew I knew that he was the guy in concussion. Um, uh, I, I knew the CTE story, and and um, I probably sensed that there was more to it than perhaps concussion portrayed. I, I do remember. I remember the first conversation we I had with Randy mentioning concussion, but um, that's how he found me, and that's I was just ready. I guess I, I you know, like that, um, I was prepared for that opportunity. And he, had, as as he's talked about, he had he had so many notes, and he had all these interviews with all these characters and people, and uh, we got we we started from that first contact we had. We started working together. Within a, within a month, I think. So before we go on to more about this most recent play, what was the premise behind The Amazing Always? You said it was also a pro football story. Yeah, so that's, that, that's it was a play. Uh, I was commissioned from a theater in North Carolina, uh, from a university in North Carolina to write a, a large cast play. Um, I mentioned to you before we start recording about that I have Game Pass, and um, I had to write this play over the summer of 2017. And all I wanted to do was really watch Game Pass all summer. So, <laughs> so I was, I was like, well, I'll write a play about football, right? And then, and so I, 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 start, I wrote this crazy play about set over 40 years um, of a family that own of uh, it's basically a fictional. AFL team that turns into the NFL. So it's 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 a it's a play really about owning a football team. That's it's a family play in that way. It's, it's over forty years. Takes place in three eras: the sixties, the seventies, and uh, just after nine eleven. There's a lot of American uh, poignant American historical events that serve as a backdrop to this football play. Um, yeah, and, and so I, that that had a that had the reading in North Carolina, and then it just had a reading in New York a month before I got in contact, or Randy got in contact with me about the Webster play. Yeah, it's called the Amazing Always because the family are called the Always. That's their last name, um, and it's a and it, and it, and it within the play, it's like an epic play. Like I say, it's forty years over the course of forty years, and it features things that. Commonly come up in football, you know, like um, franchise franchises moving cities, family conflicts, a little like the I don't know, um, you know, the ownership with the Denver Broncos. How that's uh, you, that I didn't know about that when I wrote the play, but I, if, if if anyone knows about the the dealings uh, or the, the the family situation in regards to owning the Denver Broncos, now my, my play deals with that issue also. I'll say it's just a it's a sweep through forty years of American history and American and American football centered around this one family. And then the next play, so we let's let's say that title again of the play, this one with the Mike Webster story. Oh it's sorry, it's twelve fifty two, the Mike Webster story. Okay, and then what does the twelve fifty two represent? So twelve fifty two is actually the time given of when Mike Webster passed away. On the uh, on the twenty fourth of September, two thousand and two. It's also fifty two was his shirt number, and twelve was Terry Bradshaw's number. And 
play does delve into, as well as um, Mike's relationship with his wife, um, his family, and uh, his friendship with Sonny uh, Yanni. Uh, it also deals with his relationship to uh, Terry Bradshaw as well. So almost a play on the numbers, not just because it happened to be 1252, it just kind of coincidental. Yeah. I don't, I don't, like a pun is a play on words. I don't know if you can have a play on numbers, but uh, this is a play on numbers. Yeah, we'll call it a nup because it's opposite <laughs> numbers, pun nup. I don't know. But regardless of that, so speaking of plays, you know, I myself, I've not been to many plays. So what would it, what would be the difference for writing for, say, a play versus maybe a movie or even a book? I mean, that's three wildly different things, I would imagine. It's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I guess, and, and to relate it to, say, this, uh, writing a play about what we're writing about here. I suppose in a movie, characters can come and go. With a play, you need to sort of pick. You need to sort of have less characters in the play, uh, in the story, and you need to use those characters throughout. So uh, you've got to really sort of, you have to populate your play with the characters that can tell this story and that w- and will and they all have sort of individual journeys as well and that's probably the main technical thing that would distinguish a play from uh, a movie or like or any other form like a documentary or anything like that you know people can appear in a documentary or people can appear in a film and then sort of disappear with plays just because of the nature of the practice of making theater but also what the expectations that a theater audience has whoever appears on stage has to have their own kind of story. And so that is, that's a challenge when you get a commission of a kind where it takes place over 10 years or so. And uh, so you, you are picking who to follow, who's important, who, who has resonance to uh, Webster. And also, and by the same token, you, 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 uh, there are characters that don't fit that bill and therefore you don't include them. So Randy, Ross mentioned how you have to choose players or it's players as I'm going back to football. It's my normal conversation here, players, characters to leave out. That's what the court, that's what, yeah, that's what they called. Uh, that's what they used to call them in Shakespeare's time. They were players. Yeah. Not to call you out, but you said, you know, the number on his shirt, not the Jersey in my mind, I had to remember, Oh yeah, he's talk, probably talking soccer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, so going back to, you know, leaving characters out or the players back in Shakespeare's time. So Sonny, Sonny Janney was, from what you guys have described so far, a character that was pretty prominent and an important role. And you even mentioned he had, Randy, the, I guess the rights you said to his his life story is to Mike Webster's story. How what, what did that mean? Well, what it means is that Sonny became the executor of Mike's estate. All right, so legally, he was the, uh, the person who was put in charge to allocate funds to the family, for instance. They answered to him, right? He, he, owned, he owned Mike's, you know, everything having to do with Mike Webster and football after Mike died became the purview of Sonny Johnny legally right so think about the power that's you know that's associated with that you know to do anything with uh with the mike webster uh name you have to 
you have to go through Sonny Johnny. To this day, Sonny still um, allocates money to his kids, to his wife. Anything that comes in in the name of Mike Webster has to go through Sonny or, you know, and Sonny's, not Sonny's, but, well, yeah, Sonny's lawyer um, who essentially works for both, you know, Mike Webster and, uh, and Sonny Johnny. Yeah, but then follow up. So Sonny Johnny, I mean, in my background, I'm thinking, okay, this must have been a lifelong friend. But I've recently, Ross sent me an article that that was not the case. Like, why is he the executor of the Mike Webster, uh, everything that he has great, NFL related? Great question. Okay. Now, beginning around 92 or 94, and I've never really been able to confirm uh, which which year is really when when Sonny comes into Mike's life. In other words, when he approaches him at the Greyhound station and says to Mike, you know, Mike, your signature is still worth something. Why don't you come back with me to my store, which was, you know, really his family's store, and sign some autographs. So he becomes Mike's agent. He becomes... He becomes the singular person in Mike's life who's looking after Mike's welfare, but not just Mike, Mike's family, right? So, so they send they, whatever money Mike earns, because Mike was a fairly selfless human being, um, he sends that money home to his, to his wife. And then, you know, presumably after she became his ex-wife, she claims that she had to divorce him because there was so much tax liability uh, that, you know, the, the legal advice that she got was that she had to divorce him. But there's there's more to the story. And, you know, you're going to have to come see the play if you want to. Uh, and um, you, you can certainly see the play as our guest. Um, play is going to run until the 18th. Hey, it's it's a quick four hour drive, Arnie. Um, and we know you didn't kill anybody. That was a very distant relative that we're uh, referring. I saw you smile when he, <laughs> when he. Oh, I didn't make that connection. I didn't yeah. That when connection. you said that, that's the reason why I laughed. Not because you were going to get into the schizophrenia or anything like that. Cause I don't know enough about that story either. <laughs> Franco, said he's, yeah. Franco Harris said he will show up as long as there's not another spike in COVID. Um, but we didn't tell them that there's, um, you know, a distant relative of a, um, you know, of a schizophrenic murderer that's going to be there. Anyway, no, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, anyway, so, so he ends up, he ends up being Mike's unofficial guardian for, I, I guess what amounted to six or eight years before Mike dies. And he's, He's at the bedside when when he does die at Allegheny General Hospital. And so when uh, when when they go up against the NFL uh, and it eventually went to an appellate court, it was it was Johnny and Webster. So the two of them really not only had a friendship, they, they had a legal relationship as well. And and of course, all of that happened because. You know, Johnny went out and got the lawyer and, 
you know, so that's that's the main reason. So again, you said that no teaser bombs, spoilers, whatever we want to call it. The play, the timeline. So when is it covering the timeline of Mike Webster's life? Generally, it generally deals with the first few years of his retirement. Um, I think that uh, the, the scenes are quite are quite mixed up in chronological order, but I believe like the, the earliest scene takes place um, when he's uh, he's left the Kansas City Chiefs and and they've moved uh, him and his family have moved to Wisconsin. Uh, is it um, Randy? It's Lodi, isn't it? Yeah, it was Lodi, Wisconsin, and actually, we have a couple of football scenes in there too. So yeah, there were there were there were there were some sort of flashbacky type. Um, they're they're more like transitions. They're not they're, they're not full scene, and and we go right up to his um, a, a few weeks after his death. So, in all in all, it's probably from nineteen ninety two to two thousand and two is the timeline play. So to get, I mean, to get me an understanding of, so this concussion movie, really, when I started watching it, I, for some reason, was thinking it was going to be kind of in lockstep with what the play would, but realizing after the fact, the concussion was actually more after the timeline from what the play is covering, it sounds like. Yeah, he would be, um, I haven't seen the film for so long. Well, the majority of it, so it, in I mean, I'm talking only because I watched it last night. It, I, I think it's late. I think it's late nineties uh, when we first see Webster in concussion. I think it's uh, he's in. It's very near the beginning when Doctor Malu ends up discovering, unfortunately, the, the the death of Webster and everything. It really is more like what Randy said. It's more of a movie about Amalu and his his, his uh, everything that he came about thereafter, and then against the NFL versus more That's the Mike right. Webster story. Just he was, I don't want to say the poster child, that's a bad way. He was the one that they first discovered. So it was less about Mike Webster's story, more yeah. about the Amalu story, as far as what I took away from it. Yeah. Um, but but I think that, I think when Webster's featured, I would guess that's something like, that would be in about, um, that would be probably from 2000 onwards in the concussion. Well, it would have been after his induction to the Hall of Fame in 97. So it was probably in the last uh, year or so of his life. And I don't know how, you know, how much they stuck to the facts, because after all, it was a movie. So we, we I guess, so we, I mean, to, t- to have a sort of um, timeline of perhaps Mike's, um, without giving away most of the players, we, we are, we're dealing, uh, we're dealing at the first with someone who seems to be without a purpose. and. Uh, uh, perhaps um, prone to that his marriage is falling apart through generally not being able to kind of um, find any footing after he's left football. He's not interested in things. Tries to get involved in businesses that don't. Um, he's, he also gets you know he gets used a lot for his name. Uh, he, he, he becomes particularly bad with money. Uh, and then we and we go through that, uh, and then we get to when he meets Sonny. One of the things about because uh, the, the 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 litigation battle with the NFL for various uh, or, or to apply for um, 
certain aid um, for retired players. That is a long, uh, that's a long process that you can't actually depict or portray on stage. So what we tend to uh, focus on in our play is really the relationships uh, with the family and also with uh, this, what became known as Team Webster. Uh, Randy, if you, uh, if you want to explain what Team Webster is. Sure. So, uh, but, but first, I, I, I want to also explain to Arnie what the purpose of Terry, Webst- uh, Terry Webster, uh, Terry Bradshaw was, um, because there was a very, very definite utilization of the Terry Bradshaw character. And in fact, not only did we use Terry Bradshaw, but um, we, we used sort of a uh, delusional version of Terry Bradshaw in Mike's mind. Terry sort of represented what Mike's life might have been had he gotten out when Terry got out. In other words, um, his brain may have been spared, but uh, Webster played 17 plus years, which, you know, for a, an NFL center, you know, who was going up against the likes of Mean Joe Green in practice and Jack Lambert was was probably not the best uh, decision he could have made. And, and so whereas Terry Bradshaw is still on TV, is still doing games, and still arguably living the good life, Mike Webster, who was, um, at least while they were playing, was very close with Bradshaw. You know, we, we've heard from sources that, that Webster would even call plays in the huddle for Bradshaw. That's, that's how close they were. That's how much Bradshaw depended on Webster. And I've heard this from, uh, from other Steeler players that are on the radio currently. You know, so, so, so Bradshaw is a vehicle in many ways. He's also a character. And, and, and Ross, Ross had some, I, I thought, really, really good stuff particularly towards the end of the movie with, uh, with what happens uh, when Bradshaw makes his return to Pittsburgh. But again, there's a, a little spoiler alert there. Uh, I'll let Ru- Ross talk about that if he wants to. There's a really interesting, I mean, uh, as well as them being so close in proximity on the field, the center, the quarterback, yeah, there is, um, there is a, their lives like I say, they, they were they were close, and and uh, Bradshaw did introduce him to the um, at the Hall of Fame and all that. But there is there's almost a thematic relationship with them. Like Randy says, is that you know it, one thing you could say about Bradshaw is that he's undoubtedly prospered post retirement. And as Randy said, uh, Mike Webster would uh, be uh, be the complete opposite of of that. So just that alone is a, is an interesting juxtaposition between the two. But like, um, of course, whenever the Steelers um, in the late nineties or early two thousands, when the, those old Steeler teams would get back for reunions and things, the two people who never uh, turned up were Webster and Bradshaw. And I was attracted to, I suppose, and I'm going to bring. NFL Game Pass up again, <laughs> um, and because I, I'm a, I, I'm addicted to watching uh, these old football uh, things, uh, it, it 
what what I was interested in was that a, such a successful team had these kind of two guys who, for different reasons, didn't toe the line that those ex-players do, both in service of their team and for the NFL in general. That they didn't. That they. That, um, that was interesting to me. You don't really hear from. You don't really hear from. Of course, there's a dark side to the game, and there have been victims of all kinds. There is something about winning, you know, being victorious, winning the war, but not particularly having uh, having a problem with how you did it. And hey, Ross, can I add one one thing? It, and what it cost you, and yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead, Randy. Yeah, and and you know. I, I think you brought this to my attention when when we were when we were writing this, and that is, and and Arnie, you probably know that the Rooney family is um, is you know very well respected in the league, very well respected in Pittsburgh. They're good people. They're good, humble people, and you know their football franchise is more like a family than a lot of teams and they just they just treat people uh you know from the low man on the totem pole to you know ben roethlisberger everybody gets treated the same way and you know ross i think because he you know, he had just written this play, The Amazing Always. He was very conscious of family, much more, much more than I was. But, but the notion that you have these two prodigal sons, you know, for different reasons, they were they were outliers. When 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 he when he articulated this to me, it just made so much sense. He was able to capture some of that with Dan Rooney as a character in our play. So Dan Rooney is one of the characters. Fitzsimmons, the, the lawyer for Mike Webster, is also. But there's this one scene in particular that I, I just think is is probably one of the best scenes because, you know, you've, you've got Dan Rooney as a patriarch, right, after his father dies, and Dan Rooney was 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 respected within football circles, probably even more than his father was, right? Because he he did so much to advance the game of football, and and the ethics, you know, that that he promulgated, you know, he he was largely regarded as I think the conscience of the NFL for a long time, and you know became an ambassador, as as we know, but. You know, there is this one conversation between he and Bob Fitzsimmons that really captures that that whole family thing where you could sort of imagine a dad struggling to understand why his kids, you know, why, you know, a couple of his kids didn't fall in line like the other ones did. And I think it's I think it's really, really powerful. I think it was a stroke of genius on Ross's part in this play. There are num there are really a number of areas um, that I think, you know, make this not not a football play, right? It's 
it it just cuts across so many different themes, Arnie, and it's and, and it's it's not you know it's not hokey. It's it's real, and and it I think I think Ross would tell you that a lot of this comes from you know his due diligence, his research, um, and then filling in a lot of the gaps. Uh, that that's what I was so impressed with. You know, like I said, I, I pretty much knew that he was my guy, but, you know, until we really got into it and, and watched these things unfold, I didn't know how it was going to end up. It was, it was really kind of an amazing process for me. I have to tell you. It, it was, it, it was it was by necessity. Like I guess what we're saying is the play has layers, but that you know we're not saying that as a virtue or as a, it's not a, a you know it's not a cliche. As in, uh, it's just it's just that Mike Webster had a lot of entanglements in his life, and he had a, a football thing going on. He had a family situation going on. He had a fight with the NFL going on, and it wasn't like the. Um, these characters who are also uh, the, are in the play, they're they're all in, they all are contained in these different conflicts and fights, and so you had to kind of tell about three Webster stories in one story. You, you, you see what I mean? So, uh, you know, Randy's right that it's um, it's 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 a play, it's a, it's a it's a friendship play with Sonny Yanni and about the, and about this fight um, for recognition of of what football. Uh, you know what it what it can do to um to the brain uh it's it's um but it's about it's about the Steelers as well and and as Randy says like a the Steelers family and 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 then it also it goes into more personal aspects of Webster's life uh, his relationship with his uh, wife and the breakdown of his marriage and so it was it was by necessity that it for us to tell all those stories it had to turn out or it had to be in the form Often the form, it's not something by design. It just once you go through all the, you, you you find solutions to these things and then suddenly it all sort of forms in itself. It wasn't, I don't think it turned out the way I imagined at the beginning, but that was probably the beauty of the whole thing. And, and let me just say also, Arnie, that, um, you know, Ross saying that it was by necessity. I, I felt it was by necessity that I take on this project from the beginning because, you know, that, that line, you can't make this stuff up, you know, or art imitating reality or reality imitating art. You know, I, I truly felt like it was my duty to, to tell this story or at least to have a, have a hand in telling the story because it, it did have so many layers. It was, truthful you know i was i was there as a little kid watching this all i mean not mike webster per se but you know enamored with the steelers and franco and 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 that whole thing and then it literally falls in my lap what was i going to do and it it really it's it's one of those magical things where you know you sort of have to ex- you sort of have to uh, accept the miracle, right? It was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I have no choice, right? It's almost like a calling. And um, and then life just opens and it keeps opening and you keep meeting people and 
you don't know how things are going to go, but you know, in the end, it's just it's just an amazing story. You know, it's it's it is such a human interest story, and you know, if it had been somebody else other than Mike Webster, I'm not sure it's worth telling. But because Mike Webster was just this this incredible human being who was larger than life, who did things the right way, he didn't compromise, he was generous to a fault. I mean, he gave away his trophies, then they had to go buy him back again. He wanted to sell off his Super Bowl rings because he was he was a total non-materialist. He didn't care about that stuff. Yeah, I remember his son telling me, I don't know if it was the first interview, but it was early on. He remembers he remembers his dad in this trophy room of his um, at their house and and telling Garrett, I didn't do a damn thing the whole time I was playing football. I didn't accomplish anything. And he's surrounded by, you know, all these trophies, you know, Super Bowl trophies, rings, MVPs, this and that, you know, all pro. And, and, you know, I remember, I remember listening to that and thinking about how sad that was, but, but also about what a reflection that was into who this guy Webster really was. He didn't give a crap about the hardware. It was all about the journey for him. You know, a big, a big chunk of, of the story is that, you know, Mike could have, could have taken a payoff from the Roonies. You know, it was, it was offered to him, but he said, no, this is not about me. This is about all these guys that are going through this. And I can tell you, as, as a brain researcher doing research on former NFL players, he's, he's more right than he knew. I mean, I'm seeing it in, in, in my work. He was, he was absolutely right. Anyway. Um, yeah. It, it just, it's just one of those things where the story, you know, merits greatness, right? We had to be up to it. I had to be up to it. I had to find writers that were up to it, both on the movie end and on the play end. And, and the hardest thing is, you know, or one of the hard things is when you, you think you found somebody that can do it, and then you realize they're not up to it. Because, you know, inevitably, you, you take a loss, right? You take a financial loss on that. But, you know, you have, you have to, you got to be true to yourself, and you have to be true to the project. And, um, and you have to find, you have to find the requisite quality. Otherwise, what's the point, you know? And we, we kind of made a commitment to, uh, uh, to the Webster family too, you know, right. They, they had been through so much already losing so much that, um, you know, we wanted them to feel good about, uh, about these projects. Randy, I could tell that you have a lot of passion for this project and it sounds like it's gone through its ups and downs, trials and tribulations. And we're, we're like what, two weeks or so from the launch or the release of this play. 
I think now's a good time for either you, Ross, to tell the listener of the show, if they want to see this play, what do they have to do? So uh, it's the theatre company that are um, performing it, uh, the Iron Horse Community Theatre in Ambridge. If you go to their website, I think it's ironhorsetheatre.com. Everything should be on there. Uh, and it runs throughout September. And I'll get links to that on the on the show notes when I send this podcast episode out as well. I know we have some Pittsburgh area fans uh, that are in the area, and then also some fans uh, in the network that happen to be close to it. So we'll have to let them know. And they, they would know, and I actually was trying to bring on one of them. Hey, Darren, this is a shout-out to you when you listen to this in the future. We try to bring on Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch. He is a huge, huge Steelers fan. His show is more about daily. Uh, he has a crazy daily history, but we weren't able to schedule that out and every time. So he may or may not be making it down there. Uh, one thing I wanted to get back to you real quick, Randy, before I forget about this. So you mentioned something about how you're one of the only people that maybe truly understood at the time what had happened to Mike Webster and and say in, in the brain trauma. Now, can you explain to me? Okay, say a concussion or a, a head injury. Now, is it a matter of, because you said that he got out earlier than, say, Terry Bradshaw, is it a matter of repetition or force, or is it a combination, or is there no straight-up like algorithm or, or formula that I could plug into an equation to determine how far along this guy is? Well, first, let me clarify. I, I said that uh, Webster could have gotten out earlier, but instead he played 17-plus years. So he played longer than Terry did. Okay, that's number one. Number two, it's both. Uh, the repetitive aspect of it we know is really important. So it's one thing to get a concussion. But what we understand is that there's this, this thing called cognitive reserve or brain reserve. So with each concussion, you're damaging more and more brain tissue until finally there's not enough resilience or reserve to allow you to essentially make it all the way back or close to making it all the way back. And and after you reach that point where you you don't have redundancy uh, or resilience, then each concussion takes more and more out of you. But it's, it's not that simple either. What we, what we're starting to find out, and that's, uh, some of this is coming through my lab's research, is, is that the pituitary gets into it. With, with the trauma, you can do damage to this master gland, which is located in the head. Uh, it's behind the tongue. It's a little bit superior or higher than the tongue. It's the pituitary gland. Connects to uh, the brain, but what happens with the trauma is that uh, you start or you stop putting out the hormones that you're supposed to put out, like human growth hormone. Uh, contrary to popular belief, um, adults need this stuff too. It's not just kids, you know, who who have to uh, grow and attain their genetically predetermined height. So what what we're starting to understand is that the dementias and the cognitive deterioration that we see is not only because of the concussion damaging the brain but it's also this this deficiency in these these chemicals that the brain needs 
to sustain it. And without these chemicals, we think that um, you're basically open territory for for a dementia to occur. And and that's what that's what we seem to be seeing with um, with our imaging data. So the the term concussion, how would that be defined? A concussion. That's funny because I get asked that all the time by uh, defense attorneys that I, you know, when I testify, uh, a concussion is is really a a mild brain injury. So there there has to be some impairment in nervous system functioning, in brain functioning. And typically that looks like confusion or amnesia or loss of memory. Sometimes you'll see uh, people pass out. Most of the time people don't lose consciousness, but, but they're altered, right? And it's transient. It's, it's, it's transient from the outside, not so transient from the inside. In other words, there, there, is, da- there is damage to the brain, at least in some cases, maybe not all cases. And then obviously there, there's an additive effect with each, uh, with each one. So then does that, you mentioned the resiliency factor. Is that one mm-hmm. reason why the NFL put in the protocols of they'll have a doctor watching the game and sometimes they'll take a player out, even if it doesn't seem like to the viewer that they're experiencing these symptoms? Absolutely, that's true. But we also um, what we what we know is that if you have a concussion, well, let's say a brain injury. Let's keep it more general. If you have a brain injury and you go back to play too soon before you've healed up from the prior brain injury, you're at risk for for a catastrophe called second impact syndrome, and and people die. Uh, from that. And in fact, up until all oh, five to 10 years ago, um, you, you'd hear every year there'd be a couple of deaths from second impact syndrome because coaches and trainers weren't being vigilant enough and they would send guys, you know, and I've, I've seen this, you know, because I, I, I see a lot of uh, uh, referrals by attorneys and so I've seen, I've even seen kickers who were concussed two weeks later uh, because they didn't go through a proper protocol. Uh, they were they were put back on the field, and um, at least in in, in this uh, one instance, uh, the kicker didn't even kick. It was just running on the field was was enough to compromise him. And when I looked at his brain, his brain was filled with these uh, these bright spots that were essentially scars. And and so now the league and you know it's filtered down obviously to uh, Pee Wee football. People are much more cognizant of the risks of uh, not removing guys uh, from um, from contact. Uh, so I mean, it's I think it's a, a quantum improvement. But as uh, a friend of mine said this morning, when I was when we were doing our dog walk, and he's not he's not a science guy. He's a former gym teacher. He said, "Why don't people get it that the helmet 
is not going to prevent these concussions because it's not about it, it, it's not about that superficial contact. It's about the acceleration, deceleration of the head uh, with the brain moving around inside the skull. So as long as you have uh, massive individuals moving at high rates of speed, hitting people, there will be concussions. It's, you know, it's a collision sport. There will, there will always be, there will always be collisions. But what I have come to realize is the, the pure brain injury part of this is probably less important than the pituitary part, the chemical part. And that's something that we can do something about. In fact, I have a clinical trial going on right now of former NFL players where we're treating them with growth hormone. These are, these are guys that test low. Uh, these are guys that uh, have a low quality of life. They're, they're, um, they're low energy. They typically have gained weight, but they're, they're depressed. They're anxious. They look like they have CTE, and many of them have been diagnosed with CTE. I, I think that there's at least a significant likelihood that CTE is a misdiagnosis, that it's, it's, it's hormonal and it's Alzheimer's disease, because we know that Alzheimer's disease is about two-thirds of dementias no matter what you do. Alzheimer's is really, really common, and it's the brain's way of, um, of saying enough, right? I can't take any more alcohol. I can't take any more strokes. I, can't, I just, right, it's, it's, a, it's a system degeneration. Uh, so we don't need, you know, we don't need another disease, what we have to do is we have to recognize that there are things that we can do to help the brain before it enters that, you know, that um, that terminal phase that is Alzheimer's or dementia. Yeah, when you the way you described like the brain and the 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 impact, for some reason I always go back to thinking about the Dale Earnhardt when he passed away hitting the wall and. Somebody describing, I want to say something to do with that he wasn't wearing the same neck harness as other drivers, and that was potentially going to help save him. And I don't know to what extent, but that was what I remember them saying, how his brain essentially had, had smashed into the skull. That might not be a, the best way to put it, but that's how I visioned it when I was that age. Well, you know what I heard, Arnie, uh, a, a, a few years ago when I was working closely with the researchers at Wayne State who were doing work, uh, as you may know, with the NFL and, and actually worked with uh, the big three beginning in the 1940s to try to improve automotive cabin safety. What I heard was that uh, the NFL guys did not want to use these newfangled helmets that were double layered, which actually stood a chance uh, based on, on, on their research 
of preventing concussions because they didn't look good. They were, they were heavy. And uh, there was nobody there to say, you must do this, right? The players are really powerful in this whole thing. And, and the same is true. You're absolutely right. The same is true with those neck harnesses. Um, because if it's all about the acceleration, deceleration of the head on the neck, then where we should be putting effort uh, in is to, is, is to fuse the head with the trunk, right? So that there isn't this kind of motion. Oh, you can't see me. So there isn't the flexion extension. Yeah, the flexion extension kind of motion, uh, at least to, to suppress it some. So there's no doubt, and we've known for years, that the mechanism of injury is that flexion extension uh, movement of the head on the neck, that the brain inside the skull is, is essentially morphing. It's, it's stretching. It's, um, it, it's being damaged. So the helmet can only do so much. Yeah, and it, it makes me think of so when and now you're well, <laughs> we're going back to NFL history here a little bit with the so this would actually be more NCAA history, I, I guess technically. So Teddy Roosevelt back in the very early 1900s, 1905, 06, uh, they they were going to ban football because of all the deaths and injuries. And then they 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 made it more safe with all the rules, and of course that was only a beginning and everything. I mean, is that something that when you guys go through your uh, your clinic, I don't know the right word. When you're researching how the brain has been affected throughout the course of time, do you look at past that much or is there not enough data until more recently to try to understand what happens to players? Well, I, I think in terms of um, a historical record, um, particularly as it relates to football, it all starts there. But, you know, I, I think that most of us believe that the leather helmet was um, was the way to go because guys wouldn't use their heads as um, as weapons. Um, as soon as these helmets were were invented or implemented, and the league allowed it, you know, uh, guys were 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 using the crown of their helmet, you know, to hit with, and that's the worst possible thing you could do. So the best thing that they could do is to go back to no helmet or a leather helmet. But is that really ever going to happen? I, I doubt it. That's a, that's a very interesting perspective and changing the behavior, not changing the mechanism of how the, the person is, is protected, just like in a lot of other things. And I, I would be curious now to think of like, what's the differences in concussions and rugby versus say football players and things like that. And I know we're getting way off what we came into here for. So maybe Ross, you want to tie us back in here? Let's get us back on track. No, 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 but it's, it's just always been an observation of mine that um, if, if you've got so many pads on, you've got a helmet, you probably feel fairly indestructible and you hit at a force that you wouldn't probably have the courage to do if you didn't have any pads or a helmet. Yeah. I've gotten hurt way more in my, so in my football career when I did have my pads on to your point, potentially because of that, than when I played just in backyard rest or backyard football, I, I never really got yeah. extremely injured. And, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, rugby's, we, we, we had to play rugby at school. There's no bones about it. It's a, it's a rough game. But uh, <laughs> but, no, but nobody's hitting you at 40 miles an hour. Right, yeah. And then, to <laughs> I mean, Randy hit it right on the head, not to beat a pun in there for real this time, but the crown of the helmet and everything. So let's take it in the future now, Ross. I'm going to give you that DeLorean again. Last time it was for Randy. So we're going to go into the future, however far it is in the future. Do we see a potential collaboration of you and Randy for anything else? As far as this goes, plays. I think we've talked about it. I, I think we'd love to. Um, uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I would love to. Uh, we we've, we both have. Um, whether it be um, whether it be football, um, whether it be Steeler related, um, we both have. Um, we both feel there's something to be written about Chuck Knoll. Yeah, I I I I think I I we had so much fun. I think doing this. Um, for my part, I, th- I think. Well, let, let me respond to that too. Yeah, we we um, we were very keen to do a play about Chuck Knoll. Most people don't know uh, that Chuck Knoll ended up with Alzheimer's disease towards the end, and uh, Arnie he had a history of seizures, which um, prevented him from playing for Notre Dame um, because he did transfer to Notre Dame. And he had a seizure on the field, and that was that was it. And then he went into coaching from there. So, you know, I like it because you know there's a little bit of neurology in it. Um, but but I also I, I worshipped Chuck Knoll. I mean, I grew up, you know, and I don't know who the guy was for you, Arnie, because you know, as a Lions fan, it's. I I just don't know who would have picked outside of Barry Sanders. Uh, let me let me let me help you out there, Barry Sanders. So I was born in '85. So yeah, he was always there when I first was around. I was I was gonna say, I was gonna say that that Arnie resembles Chuck Noll. You know he does slightly. actually. Now now that you I, I mention think. it, yeah. So you could play you could play Chuck. So you could play Chuck. I'll have to work on my acting chops. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but so so I went to school with Chuck's son, who was two years my senior, Chris. And um, so I reached out to him, and um, and and Chuck's um, uh, Chuck's wife Marianne is is still around, or at least she was last year when we were looking into this. And there's a, a great book that um, Michael, what was it? Michael Mc, uh, McCambridge. McCambridge, yeah. Michael McCambridge wrote a great biography that I think Ross and I learned a lot from. And Ross already reached out to, am I right about that? That you, you reached out to Michael at least a couple times, right? I think I, um, yeah, I, well, his his. I mean, everyone knows this, but uh, the America's Game was, was, was as well as uh, when I was talking about the Amazing Always earlier. That was a big. Uh, I, I reached out. I, I just told him how much I loved his book, and I told him that I had this play that was uh, used a lot, or or, or, or or how his book had influenced that. And this was when it was in New York and things. Um, yeah, and I feel like I've had a conversation with him about Chuck, uh, about the Chuck Noll thing. Yeah, I mean, it's only—it's just someone we. I think. I think. I think one of the things that we um, we discovered is is just and uh, when we were talking about how the 
Webster play ended up as being a sort of family stealer play as well. And these were things that perhaps we didn't foresee right at the beginning. You know, and you'll know this, Arnie, is when you, when you go deep into like football history, you will find connections and things and narratives that you perhaps weren't as obvious and links. And I think that's the, the general. Once you get once you once you do one of these, you want to do more. Well, I just, I just, really I, you know, the the other part of it is that Pittsburgh is is sort of a reticent place. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of literature that's come out of the old Steelers. And and Chuck Knoll was such a, um, I don't want to say humble, but, um, you know, he was very close-mouthed. You know, he had a certain number of sayings um, that his players would repeat. Um, but th there really wasn't a whole lot that came out about Chuck Knoll. Um, until Michael McCambridge and and his book, and I mean, I just and I just I've actually just remembered that yeah. the, the the first the first few lines of that Michael McCambridge book about Chuck Noll, uh, he compares him with a Lombardi because Lombardi had a play on Broadway about uh, called Lombardi, and he says about Chuck Noll, uh, you'll see no plays about Chuck Noll, so I I took that as a challenge to. Uh, that we might have to do a play about Chuck Noll just because <laughs> Michael McCambridge says you'll never see one. <laughs> now, now you see why I like this guy? Because he likes a good challenge, right? Um, so, so anyway, uh, so to answer your question, Arnie, obviously we've we've thought about uh, a Chuck Noll play, but uh, we've we've sort of kicked around some other some other ideas too. Um, and I think, you know, as I near retirement, um, uh, I, I think about, you know, kind of moving in this direction and doing, uh, doing some writing and, um, and it, it obviously wouldn't be all football stuff. Uh, I'm a behavioral neurologist, so I, I shrink brains for a living. That's, that's kind of what I do. So that's kind of open territory on, uh, on writing. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole a lot of other conversations I would love to have with you when it comes to the behavior neurologist type <laughs> of thing, but that's not football. Right. We'll talk that right. another day. So, with with that being said, um, I mean, let's let's go ahead and let's let's get this part. Uh, we'll go Ross, you first. Any last words of wisdom for the listener of the show of uh, this process, and also maybe where the listener can find your work? Yes, uh, so I, I have a website on that is. Uh, a list of all the plays I've done um, and my publisher's details and you can buy my plays. Uh, there are links on there. Um, words of wisdom. Uh, just keep, I, I suppose, I suppose what I saw or what I learned a little bit and uh, as a philosophical point about uh, football and the safety of it. Um, and I don't know how controversial this is, but I, I, began to see that just because something was bad for you, it didn't mean that it was a mistake to do it. And I do think that Mike Webster lived a very full life for the amount of years he was on. You know, he died prematurely. Um, but um, that's what I got, that it wasn't a case of regret um, for what he chose to do with his life. I think he, I think it was 
very admirable what he did and what he got out of life in the time he was here. So I don't know whether that's words of wisdom, but that's, a, I guess, a, a thought that I had about the, um, about the whole story and the whole play. Yeah, I mean, we can take that as words of wisdom. I mean, to live the life that you want to, to the fullest and whatever it is that you have a passion for. And it sounds like both of you have a passion for in the future, creating plays about everything under the sun, maybe we'll see. But speaking of that, Dr. Benson, what about you? Last words of wisdom, gridiron, knowledge, nuggets, whatever it is that you have from your work. Well, I just want to say that our our, our log line, at least, one version of it was that Mike Webster saved his best play for his last. Uh, and what we mean by that is that despite all the great plays that he had as a football player, arguably his best play was, um, was taking one for the team was, was, you know, going up against the league and, um, and, and, and doing it in a selfless way to, to, to raise uh, the level of recognition about, about a problem, right? And, and that um, the rule changes that we've seen um, that started with the NFL but have filtered down to peewee football, um, we, we believe that a lot of that started with uh, Webster and Johnny, that without them doing battle to open the eyes of not only NFL, but the public, we wouldn't be where we are right now. And there's, you know, there's certainly a whole lot more research going into, into head injury, brain injury, uh, than there was previously. Now, some of that has to do with the Gulf Wars, but it was really a confluence of football and the Gulf Wars. Um, and that, you know, that started around you know, the late 2000s, uh, 2009, 2010. So, you know, I, I feel good about, as I tell my kids, following my nose. That's, that's all I've ever done is just followed my interests, followed my passions. That's how I ended up um, with this project. You know, so um, obviously my, my, my advice to anyone who's who's listening is follow your passion you don't know where it's going to lead but it's likely going to lead you to uh doing great things so but you have to allow yourself to do that there you go mike webster saved his best play for last I mentioned this at the beginning of the interview, but I, th I think one reason why I was apprehensive to watch the movie, because I knew what I was going to see. I mean, it's not a secret that playing football is dangerous, and it's not a secret that I love the sport. So I think subconsciously I was kind of tentative to watching that movie, but I'm glad that I did. Because it's important for us to recognize the hazards that are out there and try to continue to look for ways to implement safety protocols to help players thrive in life. <laughs> See what I did there? I kind of tied it back into Thrive Fantasy, our network sponsor. Didn't do it on purpose at first, I promise you, but nonetheless, we got to give some love to the sponsor right now again. Especially because when the episode releases, this is going to be the day before NFL season 2021 starts. Going to have them boys playing against them bucks. Who's going to come out on top? But you know what? 
best way for you to get on the action, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash thrive. Sign up because you're going to get the special promo code where you're going to get a 100% matching bonus up to $100. And then you can get in one speaky day one, Bucks and Cowboys, they got some opening night props for you. Check it out. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash thrive. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going... We don't need roads. The Pigskin Tales podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, Head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.